judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Um, so Father John just gave us a quick recap of the past couple of weeks. And the reproach, I, when I was preparing for this talk, I realized it's literally all over the Bible. Like everywhere you go, you find like hundreds of places where the people of Israel are praying to God and saying, God, take away our reproach. The enemy is reproaching us. The enemy is shaming us. The enemy is saying, losers. You guys are losers. Or whatever it is about their identity. And the people are saying, God, take away our reproach. So, in this time, um, and then right after that, the week after, Father John was talking to us about how I experience how God takes away my reproach. And when you realize that, when you really realize that you stand before God, like I have just been a disaster. And I went and I stood before God in prayer. And I told him, I'm sorry. He doesn't look at me and say, sorry, you are a liar. You are a cheater. And there's nothing going to change. There's nothing going to change. He never says that. You can tell. You can, he just looks at you with the eyes that says, Marco, you are above reproach. And when you really experience that time and time and time again, what's the next thing? You're going to go out in the street and someone is going to do something. And what are you going to do? You're going to hold them as well above reproach because you have tasted what that is. So it's a couple of questions. First, why do I, as Marco, not hold others above reproach? And second is how? So we'll actually touch a little bit of what is reproach and how does it just for a little bit, and then we can kind of dive a little deeper um, into how my interactions are actually not holding others approach. So there's two ways I can reproach someone, either shame or blame. So I can either kind of tell them something about their identity. You're, you're bad. You're just bad. Or you're a cheater. She's lazy. Or I could blame. More focused on behaviors, but it's separate from me. So they did a bad thing. He just did this. He's the cause of all these problems. And these are the two ways I can reproach my brother. And you know, tell me, Marco, I, I hear you, but I'm polite. Like, I don't go to people and I tell them, you're a cheater. Or I, go, I don't go to the other person and say, you're a liar. I'm just polite. But hear me out. Me and you somehow still know what everyone actually says about us. Somehow, the, world, the word comes around, and I know what people say about me. So the person I think something of or talk about probably knows what I also think of them or say of them. Somehow, just it makes it. They know. They find out. Well, you know, you'll tell me, I hear you. I'm just, I, I never say it. I never even talk behind people's back. Like, this is not. So are you sure? Makes sense. Okay. What about thoughts? I mean, at work, this is the easiest example. I could tell you, I could tell you examples of, you know, who's the know-it-all? Who is the workaholic? Who is the annoying? Who is the boring? Who is, you know, I have a list and I can tell you the identity of each one of my coworkers. And it shows. It shows in, in how I speak, in how I look at them. And I mean, the other really fun part is home. I won't get deep, deep into this, but 
you know, if you're married or if you're in a relationship, your spouse, you have some labels for them, you know, you, because you know them too, too well. You're like, but anyway, that will kind of go very, very lightly on that one. Um, the one after that is your children. And I mean, I don't have kids, but I can imagine you have lived with your children. You are trying to raise them and they aren't fun all the time. You start to have kind of personas in your head. He's the shy one. She's the stubborn one. He's the blah, blah, blah. And if we're honest, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if that is part of their identity, they can't help but not do it. It will continue to be what they actually do. Um, so let's circle back again to the verse. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Have you ever wondered why Jesus here did not say, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you in judgment day by God? Jesus speaks plenty about that. He speaks plenty of judgment day of the last day of standing before God. But here he doesn't say that. Why? The answer is, this is just a physics law. Something basically so basic. He's just trying to explain how things work. Marco, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if I put Marco in a, a work, a team at work, Marco is a guy that blames everyone for any mistakes that happen. What is going to happen? That circle, that team, is going to be transformed into a blame game. I will blame first, and then someone else will blame me back for another thing. And it will just continue to be that. He's just saying, if you, whatever you do, however you think of people, however you even reproach them in your, in your heart, you will turn whatever circle you're in, family, friends, work, into that kind of behavior. And that's it. That's just... It's just a physics law. That's how life works. So if that's the case, realistically, how do we hold others above reproach? How do I not judge or reproach another person, even in my head? And the answer, answer is this. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Just the verse right after. There are three ways that we can easily get to not reproaching other people. First is repentance. Realizing I make mistakes too. Second, choosing not to label. Choosing not to say that this mistake that is that person's identity. And third is having a conversation. Talking and correcting in love, if needed. Um, there's a couple of really, really good examples. So... This is kind of a mini, mini Bible study. St. Paul and the Corinthians. So 
Here's what St. John Chrysostom says of Corinth. Corinth is still the first city of Greece in ancient times, which is like two centuries before St. John, uh, John Chrysostom. It prided itself on many temporal advantages. Above all, its great wealth. The city was full of orators and philosophers, one of whom was considered one of the seven wise men of his time. So when I looked it up, there were basically the top three cities in ancient Greece. Athena, Sparta, and the one right after is Corinth. They were philosophers. They were really smart, really rich, like well set. They had it all. So St. Paul went and preached the gospel, stayed with them for a few months, left, talked to them after, and now he's hearing back disasters happening in the church. So the church first is like completely separated. Some people say, oh, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. I am of Jesus. I'm neither of them. Different, they're all fighting. Some people are cheating each other and doing things behind each other back, and then they're suing the hell out of each other. They're going out into the courts, and they're like, you owe me this, you owe me that, all against each other. Um, someone was sleeping with his stepmother, and he became a leader in that church. The people were teaching terrible things about marriage. It was in shambles. And St. Paul needed to go, needed to tell them something. So what does he do? So he start the very first verse. He's talking to them. And he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God to the church in Corinth and Sothenus, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who are in every place, call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. At the very, very beginning, he could have said, you idolaters, you whatever. But he tried to instill in them their identity. Who are you? You are sanctified. You're called to be saint. And that's who you are. I believe it. I know all of this is happening, but that's beside the point. You are sanctified. And that's how he speaks to them, even though he knows all what is happening. And even though he's going to correct them just in a little bit. But their identity is none of these things that he heard. Their identity is that they are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. I actually really enjoy trying to find in all St. Paul's epistles and trying to read and say, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Galatia. And I'm like, well, like, is he exaggerating? Or like, are they really all saints and now we're the people who like, are kind of wishy-washy? He's not exaggerating and it's no different than today. This is what St. Paul would say to Asimitske if he were to write an epistle to us. To the saints who are in St. Moses and St. Catherine Church in Toronto. And then he would go. He would probably like butcher us in the, in the epistle, but you know, it, he would still call us saints. Because that is my and your identity. It's true. Um, I actually also like this. So he goes about, and it's a pretty long epistle. It's like more than 15 chapters. I actually forget the number, but at some point, after you know, taking one issue, correcting one issue, saying this is the right thing to do, blah blah, like over and over, there comes a point where he is saying, "This is the message. This is the gospel that I have said at the beginning, the resurrection of Jesus." And he goes and says the story, and at the very end, he says this: "For I am the least of the apostles, 
who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So, you know, if I'm blaming someone, or if I'm pointing at someone, I will probably try to hide kind of what I did. Like, I'm saying you're, you made a mistake. I wouldn't say, but I also made a really big mistake. But here, in the same epistle where he is correcting them, he's reminding himself and them that he was a persecutor of the church. This is not something he kind of forgets. This is something front of mind. So he's talking to the Corinthians and saying, I know it's a disaster a little bit for you, but I was a disaster too. His repentance is always front of mind. Um, another really good example is David and Saul. This is a kind of fun story. So Saul rejected God. He kind of left God behind. So God rejected Saul as king of Israel, and God anointed David. So who gets wind of this? Saul. What does Saul want to do? Kill David. So at this point, David is a vagabond. He is like a gangster, like a mobster. He has his, his guys. They're kind of like rowdy, and they literally live in the mountains and do things for people. Like, it's not fun. He's doing that. And then Saul, the king, comes against him with troops. So you have years and years of David with his gang running around Israel, hiding in the mountains, hiding in the city, hiding in there, trying to make a living, trying to make it through. And then you got Saul with soldiers running behind him to kill him. One day, and this is not like days, this is years. One day, David and his gang are hiding in the midst of inside, inside of a cave, in kind of the deep, deep part of it. And who shows up? Saul. What is he trying to do? He's trying to go to the washroom. So he finds a cave, goes in. He doesn't know that David is inside. Okay. So he's kind of sitting down, trying to do his business. And what does David's gang think? This is perfect timing. Like, you have been running away from this guy was trying to kill you while you didn't try to do anything to them. David did not actually try to harm Saul all this time. God has delivered him to you. He's right there. This can't be like a coincidence. Like God is actually trying to make you finish. So David does this. He goes, cuts the edge of the robe of Saul. And then I'll read the rest of the verses. Um, this is only part of it. And now it happened afterward that David heard David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servant with his servants with, this, with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went out on his way. David also rose, arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, 
Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks you harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Wickedness proceed from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. So, the kind of the two big parts that really struck me is they are in the midst of the cave. They are kind of on the inside. David's talking to his servants. Saul doesn't hear him. So, basically, David can really say his opinion of Saul. Whatever it is. And what does David call Saul? The Lord's anointed. David is kind of living out the verses we heard. He is saying, I will choose to identify you by how God identified you. Saul, you might be a, a murderer. You might be a like, wrathful, angry person. You might be whatever. But to me, you are the Lord's anointed. And imagine if that's what we do. Imagine if we go everywhere and instead of thinking of people, labeling them with their mistakes or things they did, imagine if we pray and ask God to reveal to us who he has made them their identity is and try to cement that to them. It'll be very different, at least for me. The other part that I found very interesting is he's face-to-face -face with his enemy. And, you know, usually what you would do is you would try to kind of strike fear into your enemy. Say that you have not made a mistake. You're, you're, you're good. Whatever it is. But what does David think of himself in front of his enemy, which is a really big deal? He says, I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. And, I mean, I know we all love our dogs, but dogs weren't that cute back then. They were kind of like what people, like, don't want to get close to. That's why he calls himself. And that's the repentance part of it. Is he knows who he is. He knows what mistakes he has done as well. So how can I judge? Um, Saul. I've learned this from Father John. And it really like changed how I see things. And this is specifically for marriages and spouses. Why he, what, I was, what I learned from him was that one of the most powerful things is to have your spouse look at you and only see the good. They know you well. Like, they know all the things that you don't do well. You, they know your identity pretty well. Like, they know all your mistakes, all the ways you hurt them, all the ways that you always keep falling over and over and over. Yet, there's something about 
looking them in the eye and knowing that they don't judge you, knowing that these mistakes don't define you. You are not the workaholic. You are not the angry. You are not the lazy. You are and the good identity that you know them by. And that's actually how you look at them. It doesn't have to be words. I know sometimes we actually do get into words, but just how we look at them will, will manifest itself. Because my identity will be where I act from. I will choose to do things because I mean, if I'm bad, badness will just continue to come out of me for kind of layman terms. But if I really believe that I am good because God has made me a saint, that is what will come out of me. Um, this is also a really awesome quote from Saint Ibrahim the Syrian. He says, do not judge that is unjustly so that you may not be judged with regard to injustice. With the judgment that you judge, shall you be judged. This is like the phrase, forgive and it will be forgiven. For once someone has judged in accordance with justice, he shall forgive in accordance with grace. So that when he himself is judged in accordance with justice, he may be worthy of forgiveness through grace. So just to recap this part, he's saying with the measure you measure, it will be measured back to you. This is very similar to what we say in the Lord's Prayer and what we've heard all the time of forgive and it will be forgiven to you. Same concept, kind of the other side of the coin. He's saying judge, judge justly, first of all, like not unjustly. I personally, I don't know how to do that, but let's say somehow I was able to just judge with justice. He's saying, once you do that, forgive with grace. So you have judged and you know it's just, you know that person did that wrong. Forgive with grace because you want to be judged, judged with justice and forgiven with grace when you fall. Um, and he continues alternatively. It was on account of the judges that those who seek vengeance for themselves that he said, do not condemn this that is, do not seek vengeance for yourself or do not judge for appearance and opinion and then condemn, but admonish and advise. So you would want to take vengeance, but this is why God gave us the commandment, do not condemn. What we ought to do is admonish and advise, which is exactly what David did to his enemy. Um, so to recap, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? The three ways that we can actually do it is repentance, kind of having the remembrance of my own mistakes, I make mistakes too. Choose not to label. Know that there are mistakes or not their identity. And have a conversation. And this is the kind of the slight, slight difference between blame and accountability. Blame is you have made a mistake. You go fix it. And I have nothing to do with this. Accountability is I, I say I, we have a relationship. We have trust. And this is why I'm asking for you to correct this. There's a big, big difference between 
I believe that we are in unity and this is why we're having this conversation versus you are to blame, go fix this. And we are not in unity. That is the very slight difference and we are ought to, to hold each other accountable. We have to do it, but not to blame. Um, now imagine a world where each one in this room, each one here, goes out into the world, into their friend, friend bubble, into their team at work, into their families, and starts to live in a way where you hold everyone you see above reproach. You never, you look at them with the eyes of not judging. Each one of those bubbles will be transformed into heaven. And imagine now if after that you empower each one of those with telling them what their identity is actually in Christ, well, that will truly, truly be heaven. Glory be to God forever and ever. Thank you.